Hi, I am here today with Jeff Wald. Hi, Jeff. How are you? I am doing great, John. Thank you for having me. No, you're very welcome. Very welcome. And you're in New York City, is that right? I am in New York City, right in the heart of Manhattan. Wow. Well, I am very envious. And you've also written a book, which I have found on Amazon and many other places. So I'm also jealous about that. So, But I'll try and be professional, despite my uh, envy. So you, you've written a book called The End of Jobs, which sounds very dramatic. It does sound very dramatic. What made you go for such a dramatic title? It was not intended to be so dramatic. And it certainly wasn't intended to come out when so many people had lost their jobs. You know, when I wrote the book, which you know, don't be overly jealous, John. It took it took about seven years to write this right. book. I mean, this is it's about as long as it's taken to write my book. And so, uh, you know, certainly there were not tens of millions of people who had lost their jobs because of global pandemic. The title of the book was meant to be ironic, in as much as there are a lot of people predicting that jobs are going to go away because of robots and AI. And I don't think that's the case. But I do think the job as we know it, the kind of nine to five, one boss one office job, that job is ending. And so the title was meant to talk about that job, not jobs in uh, writ large. Right. Because I think a lot of these kind of predictions about the future or the near future of our workplace tend to be dramatic because that's what sells and that's what grabs the attention and then tend to be completely wrong when you when we look back at them from the future. It, that is actually one of the reasons I wrote the book, John, is that it gets very frustrating when people make predictions that aren't based on historic patterns, that aren't based on data, that aren't based on how companies actually engage workers. And so people go, oh, this because of this, all jobs are going to go. And you're like, but that's never happened before. I'm not saying it's not possible. I'm just saying it's never happened before. So why would it happen now? And, you know, th there's no real answer, but it gets very frustrating. So I wanted to put together a framework for people making meaningful, high fidelity predictions about the future of work. Well, that sounds really interesting. And I, I share your frustration there as well. And I was just the other day actually watching, oh God, what's it called? The Harrison Ford film where he's hunting the AI. What's it called? Oh, Blade Runner. Blade Runner. Thank you. And I didn't realize, but that was actually set in 2019. So it was set last year. And yeah. they predicted that we would have flying cars, perfect AI that was indistinguishable from humanity, but people would still smoke in offices. And I thought that was a really interesting that they really thought that we would be at that point in 2019. Um, and look where we are. Yeah. So yeah. So predictions really is kind of um, a difficult game. So do you want to just, I mean, this is a learning and development podcast, so we're coming at this from the point of view of how will this affect learning in the workplace? How will this in fact affect us as learning and development professionals, affect the advice we give, the work w that we do? So we'll, we'll kind of steer the conversation in that direction. But before we do, can I just go back on something that you just mentioned? Because you talked about making predictions that don't have any kind of basis in fact or, or, or history. So can you talk me through what were the kind of moving parts that you decided to incorporate into the model that would help you make predictions for the future? Sure. Well, it, it is those three elements, the history of work, the data patterns through the history and through current state of work, and how companies actually engage workers, which we call in the book, the labor equation. And the idea within history is that, look, we've had three huge step functions in technology before, mechanization, electrification, and computerization. And each time, companies and workers needed to basically rebid their contract because the balance of power massively tilts to companies. So as that begins to happen again, and we are in the you know, early stages of this fourth industrial revolution now with the robots and AI, what can we learn from the first three? 
And then what data patterns and data trends have persisted through those three? So what can we reasonably assume will continue from a data standpoint? And then obviously, what is the actual data today? People make predictions like, oh, I think 50% of the workforce is going to work remote once COVID's over. And you're like, okay, but you realize that 42% is the natural limit. That would be if everybody was working from home, it would be 42%, but you're predicting 50%. That'd be an example of a prediction using no data. And then the third thing is how companies actually engage workers, how your listeners are working with their executive teams to think about how they do labor resource planning. And people make this very myopic you know, state, statement, which is, oh, companies will just you know, go to the lowest cost possible. That is a factor. Nobody's saying cost isn't a factor, but to pretend that it's the only factor in the way companies engage workers is just all of your listeners know and anybody that works in the world of work knows that's not how companies make labor resource planning decisions. So those three things, I'm just going to go through these one by one. And I don't know how it sounds absolutely fascinating to me. So uh, this may go on a bit too long. I might have to cut some of this out. But um, the first point you made there was about going from mechanization to electrification. Did I get the order right here to computerization and now to the sort of AI robot? And as you say, that's tilting things away from, I guess, the provider of labor labor to to the provider of capital. Yes. Uh, You say you think that will exacerbate, will continue. Do you want to just yes. talk through why you think that's the case? Um, what what was the analysis there that makes you think that's going to car- historically carry on? Well, you know, in terms of the continued adoption of robots and AI, we are just at the early stages of these technologies and their proliferations. Why I think the pattern will hold, where we will be very fearful that all jobs will go, and then it'll turn out that most jobs don't go, some jobs do, but we create more jobs, so we end up with more jobs and a higher standard of living. Look, the easiest answer to that, John, is that that's what's always happened. So let's start with that. Second, those predictions of the end of jobs because of a new technology never pan out because technologies take a much longer time to actually propagate than people think. You know, it might take 30 years just because an autonomous car was driving in Phoenix, Arizona or in various other test sites does not mean that it's road ready in the next few years. And autonomous cars are actually a great example of that. Let's talk about that for just a quick second. The the autonomous car is about 90% ready, about 90% ready to go on the road. And everyone that is in that field or tangentially in that field saying, oh, look, it took them 10 years to get to 90%, so it'll only take them another few years to get that last 10%. And it doesn't appreciate the technology adoption curve and the complexity of those edge cases because you can't put a car out on the road that's 98% road ready because then 2% of the time it might kill somebody. And so you need the car to be 100% road ready. But the people, when you talk with the people actually developing autonomous vehicles at Tesla and Waymo, a few other places, they say, wow, yeah, this last 10% is proving to be much more difficult. We may never get the last 10% right. And so people, again, make this linear assumption. Oh, they went from zero to 90%. Therefore, whoop, the next 10% they'll do in the same amount of time. No, things get much, much harder to perfect. And so The reality is autonomous vehicles may never be on the road. They may never get this right. But the idea that they're going to get it right in the next five to 10 years and all trucking jobs are gone, which is what many people predicted. No, not even remotely close. And so that's an example of when people overestimate a new technology and its impact on jobs and how quickly that technology will become a part of the everyday economic landscape. 
putting it and that is a really interesting example yeah because i would have thought that driverless cars were pretty much ready to go and what perhaps needed to change was our attitudes because we expect them to never kill anybody which is an unrealistic standard because driver drive driven cars driven by humans kill people so it seems a bit unrealistic to expect a driverless car to never ever kill anyone so it kind of feels to me like we actually need to shift our attitude a bit um because the, the bar's too high that felt closer to me it's not just attitude it's it's the legal framework right like if i'm driving a car and i make a horrific mistake and i you know horrifically kill somebody it's very clear i am at fault i am at sure. liable it's clear which insurance responds i mean not clear is in 100 percent clear but there is a very clear process for adjudicating what happens if the car kills somebody who's responsible tesla doesn't want that that liability right as the driver i didn't do anything am i liable so it be, creates a whole new framework around liability which we haven't even scratched the surface of and you can't put the cars on the road much like as a driver i can't get on the road without insurance you can't put the cars on the road until we figure that out and so those are very nuanced difficult conversations that i don't think our politicians are up for just yet i think that brilliantly illustrates the problem here in terms of technological adaption because we might initially just consider it a technological challenge of how can you get a car to be able to recognize you know a curve a bicycle a human a tree or whatever which of course that is 90 percent of the the problem but as you say the problems that are kind of in that last 10 percent are actually outside of there they are around cultural expectations they are around legal things as you say which might not necessarily occur to us so i think that's that's you know fascinating in terms of how we move into this technological space where robots and AI take on the responsibility, not just, what am I trying to say? As humans, we have responsibility for our actions and our behaviors. So if AI or robots are doing that, do they have responsibility? And that's why you're shrugging. And that's the, yeah. that's the point. There's this, it, it's nothing to do with AI in the sense that it's not technical, but it's a massive obstacle. One of my favorite examples when the steam locomotive was created Nobody wanted to get on it. They were like, well, I don't understand this thing. What is this thing? And the way that they got consumer adoption is they put stagecoaches. They made all the cars look like stagecoaches. And people would say, oh, I know what that is. That's a stagecoach. I I know I get on that. And that was how the first steam locomotive uh, or, or any locomotive was able to get consumer adoption. You look at the pictures of the first trains. They look like a bunch of stagecoaches strung together. People have an inherent fear. That's now that's not touching on the liability and it's not it just shows the challenges technologies have with consumer adoption. Yeah, that's and, and for, looking at this for, for a moment, you from a, a learning and development point of view, if organizations are changing, well, you're, you're sorry, you, let me ask this differently, because you're kind of saying that they're not changing that much by the sound of it. You're changing that they're not changing as much as predicted. Well, they're not changing as much as predicted with predictions saying half of jobs are going to go. Those predictions, I think, are not well-based in evidence. If we really break down the evidence and the data, which I obviously do in the book, you'd see that the data would tell us that over the next 20 years, 10 to 15% of jobs will most likely go. And while that's not 50%, that is still huge and presents substantive challenges for companies, for workers, and for society as a whole. And it presents massive challenges from a learning and development standpoint, I would argue, in two important ways. One is the retraining necessary as we move the people that lose their jobs into the areas that are growing. That's problem number one. And that is a problem that society has done poorly 
incredibly poorly through all the industrial revolutions that we've had. We do this part poorly, and we do it poorly to our peril. But the more interesting part from a learning and development standpoint uh, is the time at which skills abate. It used to be you'd go to university you'd learn, or a technical school, you'd learn a skill, and that skill could be monetized over a 30 or 40 year period. You know, little tweaks here and there. But now with the rate of technology, technological change accelerating, with the rate of technology adoptions accelerating, we can point to a whole lot of statistics around that. The length of time until a skill abates and you have to really upskill or reskill is starting to shrink to three to five years, depending on the skill. And the idea that you have to be a constant learner is now evolving. Now, within that retraining construct and within the continuous learning construct, we don't know how all this will play out. Will it be the education system that will do this? And we'll move away from the four-year college and people will constantly be going back to school. Will it be the individual that will just do it through a VR headset and that'll be how they acquire new skills on their own, on their own dime? Or will companies say, you know what, we can't count on the education system. We don't want to wait for people. We are going to do a lot more learning and development of our own people to upskill them, to make sure that they're always refreshed and of people that come in. And so all of that has yet to play out. And I think your audience would have a very interesting perspective on how they think it will play out. If we assumed the latter, just for the sake of discussion, that organizations will take on at least a chunk of this in terms of retraining people, uh, which they will obviously only do if they need people to have those skills. What are the kind of core skills you see as being vital in this new landscape? So when people ask me, oh, well, because jobs are, which jobs are ending, which, how, what should I do and what should I tell my kids? And I always say to go hard, to either go hard tech or hard human. Hard tech jobs continue to grow through the pandemic. They will continue to grow at an accelerated pace post-pandemic. God willing, we get there soon. And those are computer science, coding, data, analytics, robotics, AI, all of those fields growing massively. And then hard human. The hard human jobs are jobs that the robots never really will be able to do in the medium term. In the long term, everything's off the table. But in the medium term, the idea that a robot would be able to do a real customer service interaction, a real HR interaction, a sales or a marketing interaction, a lot of healthcare interactions, all those interactions require empathy, they require creativity, they require human connection. And so hard human jobs are also predicted to grow. And that is where we see most job growth coming. And as we think about how those jobs may evolve and how those jobs grow, we would predict 10 to 15% of jobs being created in that space. Therefore, no net job losses from the robots and AI, the fourth industrial revolution, much as we had no net job losses. In fact, we had job creation in the industry, other industrial revolution. Why, why do you see job growth in the hard human sector? I think it's easier to see why in the hard tech, but why hard human? So there's a great example within the ATM world. So, you know, the ATM came out and everyone said, oh my gosh, this ATM is here and we're never going to need tellers again. I mean, it's in the name, right? It's called the automated teller machine. It's doing the job of the teller. And in the United States at the time, John, there were 500,000 bank tellers in 1995 when the ATM hit full penetration at every bank branch in the country. And over the next 25 years, there was actually a 20% increase in tellers. Really? And there was an increase. Yeah. 
There are 600,000 bank tellers in the United States today. And there was an increase because of a few things. But one of those things was that the bank started to compete more heavily. And instead of you coming into the bank and waiting on a line before you finally got to talk to somebody who just wanted to process you and get you out, now you're greeted by a person at the door. Hi, welcome to Chase. How can I help you? Welcome to Barclays. How may I help you? And it is a very different interaction. They could automate the heck out of that interaction, but they don't because from a customer service standpoint, from a competitive standpoint, they want to make sure you keep coming in. And as a human, we like that interaction, right? We tried automated calling systems. We've tried a host of automated things and companies that do that did it to their peril and customers left. And so look, Maybe 30 years from now, might we have a very different mindset, as you pointed out at the beginning? And might we be perfectly comfortable talking to a robot? Maybe. But in the near term, we're not. And so companies are continuing to engage people because they want to be able to deliver that higher customer service and customize customer service. Because as a call center rep, I have all of this data about you when you call in. And so now I'm really able to talk to you as a person. And companies have been very, very happy with that interaction. So it's moving away from that kind of low, low skill, I guess, or low value transactional, where mm-hmm. I just give you the money you asked for, to being a much more kind of relationship interaction, it, it is. whereby I'm actually trying to get trying to build a relationship and, and build your loyalty and encouraging you to invest more. Hundred percent. Much more skillful operation for me as a as a worker. Yeah, and those bank tellers are not just coming in and saying hi, how are you? They're saying. Would you like to talk to an investment professional today about a mortgage or an automotive loan or an investment product? Right? They're really diving in. And when they, you know, you say your name, they can pull up your profile and say, oh, what can we help you with today? Can I actually do that right here for you? It is a great interaction to walk into a bank branch in, uh, in Manhattan these days. Well, I actually can't walk into a bank branch in Manhattan these days. But when I did and when I will again, it was a great interaction. You could have a mask on, can't you? Oh, you're not allowed even with a mask on. I actually don't know. I will fully admit that I have not tried to walk through a bank branch. All right. You can hear. You can do most things here, but you have to wear a mask. I am sure that I would have to wear a mask if uh, if I went in and if they were open, which they may well be open. So in terms of like the future of work, then let's stick with this hard human, which is not a phrase I'd heard before. Is that a phrase that you invented? Uh, Well, I have no idea if I invented it, but no one told me about it. And I came up with it about a month ago and I've been using it. So... Okay. Yes, let's say that I invented it. That let's sounds like you invented it. Trademark Jeff Wall. Okay, let's. Well, I'm going to use it um, and not give you any money for using it. So, um, grandfather, you. So, w- w- what we're saying is the jobs that will disappear are those kind of more transactional jobs where you, where, where the relationship is not. Sorry, whether it's not about the relationship, it's much more about the transaction. So. When we look at the history of work, John, the types of jobs that get automated, and this always happens, are what we refer to as repetitive high volume tasks. If it's the same task and it's done over and over and over again, so you can think about a manufacturing line and someone, you know, welding a bolt, welding a bolt, welding a bolt. Well, you know what? A mechanical arm can weld a bolt, weld a bolt, weld a bolt. When you think about data entry, when you think about the task of taking money in and giving money out. It's the same thing, in, out, in, out. There are obviously some edge cases, like when I went in the other day to get $100 worth of pennies, well, the other day meaning seven months ago. And so there are very few tasks, if there are very few tasks within a job category that are repetitive high volume tasks, then that job doesn't get automated. If there are 
more than 50%, the job has a high degree of potential of being automated. If they're more than 75%, almost every single time, it will get automated, save for a few edge cases. And so that's the pattern that we see. So we think about what jobs have repetitive high volume tasks. Manufacturing was the first to be impacted by this. We often talk about it in the history of work as the end of the age of computerization, not the beginning of the age of robotics and AI, but clearly there's no hard line between the two. The two have overlapped. And those robotic arms that were able to weld and paint and lift things in industrial manufacturing caused the job, the loss of about 40% of US manufacturing jobs. So we can say as much as we want about environmental policy or trade policy, this country taking jobs, that country taking jobs. The reality is in the United States, we produce twice as much from an industrial output standpoint as we did in 1980. But instead of being 20 million workers in manufacturing the United States, there are 12 million now. And it is because those workers engage in repetitive high volume tasks. So we think today about the types of jobs that have repetitive high volume tasks. And you think about other things in manufacturing, we're starting to move into light manufacturing and assembly. You start to think about data entry, you start to think about some retail jobs, some transportation jobs that are repetitive high volume tasks. And those are the jobs that when we do that analysis, job category by job category, have 75% or more of their component tasks that are repetitive high volume tasks. Therefore, that's how we, when we do that math in a very large series of spreadsheets using a very large series of algorithms running a different series of different scenarios, that's how we get to our 10 to 15% of jobs being lost is looking at the component tasks of hundreds of different job functions. And organizations are gonna need different kinds of skills we said. It wouldn't just yeah. be that you learn those skills at college, university, and then they, they're valid for the rest of your career. And we talked about who might do that. Would people go back to school? Would the people just do it on their own or would organizations do it? So if we're, if we're working in L&D in an organization and we want to keep our workforce as ready as possible for whatever changes might be coming up, many of which we have no idea and cannot predict with any particular accuracy, what are the main areas we should, as L&D people, we should be looking to develop? Well, let's start with this. Does your audience, do they know what skills they have in their organization today? Because a lot of people answer no to that question. And if you don't know... We have a pretty sophisticated have, audience, Jeff. They're, uh, they're, they're bloody good. Doubt. Listeners to this podcast are bloody good. I don't doubt. I would only question the systems that they have their access to and whether that system is accurately categorizing the skills on a real-time basis of all the employees. And so one of the major themes that we talk about in the book is what we call convergence, the convergence between the on-demand market and the full-time labor market. And that convergence is all of the things that the on-demand worker faces today. Let's use the Uber driver as our, as our example, whether it's working remotely, clearly, working beyond the nine to five schedule, clearly, data-driven HR, Right? The Uber driver still has an HR function that's happening. It's just they're not meeting with an HR person or an L&D person. They're getting data that's telling them how responsive they were, how many jobs they did, what ratings they were getting, and a host of other things. Algorithms allocating work and all of those things. So think about that data-driven HR in the on-demand context. So WorkMarket, the company that I founded, we capture 127 unique data points for every job that a person does. And we're learning about that person, about Joe Smith and what Joe Smith can do. Because we see in real time, oh, he went to do a job 
that required him to fix a Cisco router, and he did it successfully, and the company was happy. That's a pretty good data point that he knows how to fix that particular piece of equipment. Now, the next time a job comes up for that, I know this guy has that skill. So we can in real time do skills matching because we're learning in real time, not only what they tell us about what skills and certifications and licenses they have, but what they're doing in the field and how people are interacting with them, right? So we take that data and we are then applying it to every new job that comes in. Those things, that kind of skills mapping and mapping skill, skills identification in real time and then mapping them to the needs of a company is increasingly permeating the full-time workforce. So I'd start with this question. Do you know in real time what skills all of your employees on all of your workforce, meaning not just your full-time employees and part-time employees, but the temps that you use, the freelancers you use, the vendors you use, do you have that skills mapping all in one place? Because if you don't, you're somewhat behind the eight ball right now because a lot of companies, to your point, do. And so once you can see that skills mapping and you look at your customer demand, you can say, all right, we can solve all of our skills. Now you might do some thinking and saying, well, do we have the right skills though for five years from now, 10 years from now? Then you start adjusting your hiring or you start adjusting your training programs. And what a lot of companies find, at least from my perspective, right? And at work market, we are processing billions of dollars of on-demand spend is that companies are finding their freelance populations don't have the right skills. And so they put forward trainings for them to do, or they're putting out, hey, we need different freelancers with different skills, different contractors with different skills, which is to say that, you know, Joe Smith as an Uber driver or as that freelancer, if I don't go and update my skills, the company's gonna go find other people that do, and I will no longer be getting work. Those are the kinds of things that I think a lot of people in the freelance world worry about from a learning and development standpoint. And I have seen this convergence. And I think a lot of people in the full-time world of work are going to need to worry about. Yeah, I think in that kind of freelance world, that sort of gig economy, it's a, the, the onus is on the individual to have the marketable skills. And I, I think that's that's absolutely right. And they will follow the money to some extent. What about with organizations will still have a core of humans within them? doing some of the work you've already described, the hard human stuff, and just, you know, being at the heart of that organization with its, with its you know, management strategy and whatever. What are those people going to have to be focusing on in order to keep up? Well, the short answer is, Johnny, it, it obviously differs company to company, industry to industry. This is something that L&D professionals need to be incredibly mindful of. They need to be talking to their peers. They need to be listening to experts like yourself and, and, and podcasts to try to make sure that they are staying at the forefront of this. But the other thing, aside from getting that skills mapping, then doing that thinking about where your skills mapping relevant to your industry, relevant to your company and where your company wants to go. It's an important conversation to have with your C-suite to sit down and say, look, if we don't do X, Y, and Z investments now, we're going to be in trouble in two or three years. Our competitors are making these investments and they're going to end up with a higher skilled workforce than we have. Our skills gap is getting exacerbated. Those are the kinds of warnings that a CEO wants. You know, one of my favorite little anecdotes, because I like to pepper the book with anecdotes, is the, the joke that I'm sure is known to the L&D community, which is, you know, the CFO uh, comes in and says, well, we, we have to cut the training budget. What if we train all these people and they leave? And the CEO says, what if we don't train them and they stay? 
Yeah, it's one of my favorites. And so, you know, they need to be mindful of it, but they need the data to be mindful of it. That would be all point, all in point one. Point two is then what technologies are you going to bring to bear to do this training? And there are great companies out there that are, you know, help doing a lot of innovating in the L&D space. But the companies that I get the most excited about are the people that are doing things from a VR technology standpoint, not just innovating on the LMS, just not just taking the LMS and innovating, although there are great innovations in the LMS space, as I'm sure you guys are aware. North, a company called North Pass is one of my favorites, North Pass. But then when I think about how this may evolve, that North Pass model is company managing learning. The transfer, there's a company called Transfer VR, which full disclosure, I'm an investor in, but they have a VR headset and are working with some of the largest industrial manufacturers in the world, having amazing results, 90% compression in the amount of time and the amount of cost necessary to get somebody ready to go on to the manufacturing line. And they are now starting to build out other modules around soft skills and a host of other things, because here's what's happening with Transfer. Transfer is being employed directly by these huge industrial manufacturers in the automotive space, in the defense space, in the aerospace space, space, aerospace sector. They are being engaged by states. The state of Alabama just launched a multi-million dollar program with them to train up the workforce in the state of Alabama. They have a huge program with two-year colleges. Two-year colleges all around the United States are employing their technology. And they have consumers that are just buying the headsets and the program to do the training on their own. And that kind of lays out when we sit at transfer and talk about where, 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 where do we go? How does this play out? We don't know because that technology enables the education system, companies, the government, individuals to all be the person running this upskilling, this reskilling of people. That to me is one of the more interesting things to watch in this space. Yeah, it, it's kind of like it's almost impossible to answer the question, isn't it? Because there's so many unknowns and so many, so many different contexts available. Mm -hmm. But is there any kind of common ground running through the middle of this where you say people that are trying to be employable in the hard human space need to be good at X, X and Y and Z? And that's just pretty much everywhere. Yeah, well, look, if if your listeners were to read one thing about the future of work, well, if they read one thing, they should read my book and the jobs on Amazon, you can get it now. If they can read a second thing, I would say the World Economic Forum does an excellent job of really breaking down these specific skills that they're going to grow and why. And that was where, after reading their report and you know, 100 other reports that I have the great pleasure of reading on a daily basis, um, that's where I kind of came up with hard human, because you look at things that are around and they will use they use the word two terms they use one is empathy and the other is creativity and they focus on those skills and where those skills get applied from an hr standpoint a sales standpoint a marketing standpoint a healthcare standpoint almost every healthcare interaction uh, certainly involves empathy a design standpoint because those are things that as you look at the roadmaps from google and their google x project from amazon and all these other places that are developing advanced ai there is no near-term possibility, near-term meaning, you know, let's say medium-term over the next 20 years, that robots will be able to come even remotely close to doing the kinds of things that a human can do. And so you read stories about, oh, well, there's a robot that can write a news story. You're like, yeah, there's a AI engine that can write a news story. 
That does not mean that journalists are going to be out of a job. It's just not going to happen in the near term or in the medium term. Because the kinds of things that go into researching that story and the understanding necessary, the empathy of con conveying the empathy in the story, the creativity of really discovering right the right angle is, the robot can't do it. Just, I mean, full stop has no capability to do it. So that's what we talk about when we talk about hard human. So we're talking about empathy on one hand, which I suppose is just getting really good at understanding people and how they operate, and then creativity on the other hand, which is around, obviously we know that means, don't need to really define it, but two areas where we think that um, are real growth areas in the hard human bit. You've talked about future of work quite a lot, and I think you've got, you have a future of work prize. I do. You do. So what made you decide to launch that? What's all that about? Whew. Well, I will tell you what initially made me launch it is the fact that I am not really that great a writer and I was getting a lot of anxiety about putting out a book. <laughs> and I do not like to repeat myself when I write. I like to make the point and move on. And a lot of business books make the same point like 87 times. And I, I, I just couldn't do that. So as I was... That's because they should my... really be 87 times shorter. Most yes, business books. Most business books should be pamphlets. Yeah. We are in violent agreement about yes, that. Very much so. And so and H hence so the like, success wow. of Blinkist. Oh, love Blinkist. Yeah. Love it, love it. But love I think it. that's why it succeeds, because most business books should be just blinks. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, I've, I've interrupted your flow. No, no, no worries. And so I thought, all right, well, you know what's much more interesting than me repeating myself is me getting the men and women that are actually shaping the future of work to write their visions, short essays, on what they think the world of work looks like in 2040. And the people that I was interviewing for the book, and I interviewed, John, I mean, I interviewed hundreds of people. The people that have served in the departments of labor in various countries, heads of departments of labor in various countries, the leading lawyers that are out there litigating and helping corporations, heads of unions, heads of companies, heads of HR departments, heads of industry organizations. And I started asking a few of them that I really, really just admired, hey, would you mind writing a short essay on what you think the world of work looks like in 2040? And we'll create chapter 10, which is just 20 short essays. And amazingly, everybody said yes. I was kind of blown away by it. And I, you know, at the time had just heard uh, the founder of the XPRIZE speak and was so blown away by what the XPRIZE does and how they do it. And I have the honor right now of serving on their advisory committee on their reskilling project, future of reskilling. And I thought, you know what? Let me do that. And so I put up a $10 million prize for which of these writers is the most correct. Now, look, I put it up in 2040, but uh, the money is in a separate account that under every normal circumstance will grow to 10 million in 2040, January 1st, 2041, uh, or sorry, 2040. And uh, we will award the prize to one of these 20. And I will say it is chapter 10 is my favorite part of the book, not only because these people are so amazing and their essays are all over the place Right? we have some people that think it's going to be an amazing future by 2040 and we're all robots and AI are doing all of our mundane tasks and we're focused on leisure and family and science and love and it's wonderful. And I have other writers that think it's a dystopian future and we're all screwed and we shall see. And so that has just been super, super, super fun. That sounds fascinating. I think I'll get the book 
especially for that chapter does sound really interesting and uh, i could use 10 million dollars to be honest so i might send you my thoughts see if it's too late to put them in edition two i will have to create an edition two that may have to happen so i will will circle back to you on that well if you're lucky inflation hyperinflation will make that 10 million dollars worth very little and it's not such a big investment that's quite a big prize that's quite quite eye-catching yeah is there anything that we haven't really talked about in this interview so far that you feel is really important part of of your thesis the point of the book well you know because we did get to talk about that heat mapping of skills that kind of goes into one of the major points of the book that we didn't explicitly talk about which is this idea of total talent management and the idea that companies will manage all of their labor resources in one system and so as i advise chros and c-suites on the future of work i will often say to them step one have you systematized all your labor they're always like yeah i was like okay how do you manage your freelancers they're like we have no idea how many freelancers do you have no idea how many temps no idea like okay so you haven't systematized all of your labor engagements first you need to systematize them then you need to stitch those systems together so that you have one view ideally they'd be in one system but there are very few companies very few hcm providers that have that one system ADP is one of those providers, and that's why they bought my company, Work Market, to attach it to their HCM suites. But it is very difficult to do. But at least stitch the systems together so you can see all of your labor resources. And then start querying, do I have the right data fields on all these resources around their skills, around their availability, and a host of other things so you can get to this future of an AI system that is allocating work, that is atomized into tasks, to any labor resource that you have. And you see in real time, the matching of the tasks that your company has to perform to generate revenue with the skills that your company has in order to service your customers. And so those are the kinds of things that get very, very excited. Those are the kinds of things that we're working on at ADP uh, now that I am a part of the ADP organization. And they are very much at the heart of the future of work, this team-based fluid, uh, work from anywhere, always on future of work. I was going to say that does sound extremely flexible and it kind of links to a lot of what people are talking about at the moment with so much remote work going on. Do you see, I mean, you mentioned before 42% being the sort of the, the ceiling, but do you see remote work being the inevitable future for that 42%? So I don't, I don't. There are a few reasons I don't. Let's start with the first, which you know kind of goes back to this empathy and humans are a social animal. We don't want to be sitting in our houses by ourselves or with our families through the entire time. We do want to go to the office. That's just we just have survey after survey which show that people want to do it. Most people. So as with anything, John, surprising nobody that's been listening, uh, I like to start with data. And the data would say that pre-pandemic, 3% of the U.S. workforce worked remotely. Now, it's important to be definitional here because work remotely does not mean every other Friday I work from home. It doesn't mean every fourth week I work from you know my parents' house or wherever. It means that more than 50% of the time, so in the US that creates a tax nexus, you are not in the office. So your tax nexus is your home or whatever other location you're working from. It also means that the company doesn't provide necessarily infrastructure for you. You don't have a desk. You might just hotel, you'd use a hotel desk. So there are two big implications from a tax standpoint and from an infrastructure standpoint around that definition of remote work. When we were at the height of the pandemic, and God willing, we won't go back to that, uh, a 
about 40% of the U.S. workforce is working remote. Again, the natural limit in the U.S. is 42. In other countries, it's, you know, in the high 30s uh, or others are in the low 40s. But it obviously differs country to country based on their economic landscape. So those are things that we think about and we start to look at the job breakdowns that do work remote and what percent of those workers will work remote going forward. And we get to about 8% of the U.S. workforce that will work remote post-pandemic. And people say, oh, that's not enough. And I say, I right, remember two things. One, 42% is the natural limit in the U.S. So that at 8% is almost 20% of those that could work remote. That makes people feel better about the prediction. And secondly, we have that, we have that definition of remote work. If you were to ask me how many people will have flexible work arrangements, I would say, oh, like 30, 30 to 32% will have flexible work arrangements where Every fourth day, they don't come to the office, or maybe two days a week, they don't come to the office. They're not going to break that 50% threshold. But, you know, pre-pandemic, when someone said, you know, if I were to say to you, hey, John, I'm going to work from home tomorrow, you'd be like, oh, that's great, Jeff. So you're going to go to the beach. You're not doing anything. But now people understand when I say I'm working from home, they'll say, oh, great. I will see you on Skype. I'll see you on the Zoom calls, and we'll, we'll circle up on that project, and you'll update Asana or, you know, whatever project management software we're using, we'll know where, where your progress is. People understand that you can do this now. And so that 3% to 8% is a massive move that happens very infrequently in the world of labor. But that is what the data would tell us. I assume you're getting when you say 42% as a ceiling, I presume you're saying that that's how many people work in an office or work in that kind of environment, which lends itself well to that. Clearly, some jobs, whether it's transportation, hospitality, sure. retail, manufacturing, obviously, entertainment, can't be done uh, for the most part from people's homes. Right. So, yes. So that's where that comes from. Um, and the 8%, yeah. where's that come from? The 8% is an analysis that I did running a, here, a series of scenarios using the BLS data on different job categories. And so the 8% is literally just Jeff Wald's estimate. Okay. And what skills do you think will be key in order to make that succeed with having 8% of people not feel like they're being shortchanged? They're still in the right conversations. They're still getting the career opportunities. They're still getting the performance respect and performance reviews they deserve. What are the key skills we're going to have to adopt? Well, it raises an interesting question, which is do companies have policies and procedures to enable remote work at scale? And if they don't, then those workers will feel disconnected. But it's important to remember that most people of those 3%, that was mostly, and we don't have hard data on this, but surveys would tell us upwards of 90%, it was the worker wanting to work remote. And that most people that wanted to work remote were told no by their company. That if given the choice, upwards of 10% of workers would work remotely. That is the choice that a worker would make. Now, I put 8% not only because we did an analysis of job sector by job sector, industry by industry, and things like that, but also taking into account that about 10% of workers want to work remote full time. Now, we haven't done that survey again after the pandemic, maybe having been in their houses with their spouses or children or are isolated, which is sometimes very debilitating. Uh, they may, it may no longer be a 10%, but I have to go on the data that I have. At, at the time. And so those policies and procedures are super, super important. And if companies move remote without them, without making sure there's a default Zoom for every meeting, 
And then when you go into the conference room, the Zoom is on, even if there's nobody there, right? Like those things become super important and they're very detailed, they're very nuanced, but they become hyper important if you wanna make sure that you're engaging this on-demand workforce. And look, we don't really know from a cultural standpoint, we don't know how you build trust for a new employee that comes in, how they get engaged into the ebb and flow. We're doing this pandemic with a group of workers that were working together prior. What happens, and we're already obviously starting to see it, as new workers are brought in, it's one thing to take an existing team and to stress the team by moving them remote. The team can take it, they have trust, they know their policies and procedures, they have their norms. New person coming into the team obviously has no trust with new people, they have to build it, they don't know the norm. That's gonna become very tricky. And this is where another thread that I spend a lot of time on are culture documents, making sure that it is very clear in black and white, on paper, what your culture is, what behaviors you expect from your workers and your managers, what policies and procedures support your values. Because if it's written down on paper, it's much easier for a new person to understand it. It's much easier for existing people to reinforce. Yeah, that's that's interesting. There's a lot of there that people might not necessarily think of being important. And I think some of it we won't actually know. We're, we're discovering. A lot of this is quite new for us as well. I know, just to give you an anecdote, in uh, one of our, in, in my organization, in one particular network, they used to have meetings where roughly 50% of the people were in the room because they worked in that office and roughly 50% were on screen because they worked in um, branch offices. Mm-hmm. And now, obviously, with people working remotely, everybody's on screen. And those meetings have improved their end because you don't yeah. have that split between half the people in the room, half the people remote. So the, the head of that particular network has said, I'm going to always do those meetings now on screen. Yeah. Which is uh, something that none of us predicted when this happened, we didn't see that coming. So I think there'll be a lot there of discoveries be. like that, which we won't, you know, we, we won't be able to see now until we really try and, as you say, kind of, until we really try and codify a lot of those policies and, and, and behaviors that we want to see, we won't necessarily know what they are. Well, look, the smartest thing said over our last hour was your statement that the future of work is hard to predict. And it's hard to predict because we don't know so many of these things. And when people ask me, oh, well, what's going to happen post COVID? My answer is, Nobody knows. We don't have the data. Now, I can make predictions, but they're very low fidelity predictions until we see that data, because we don't really know how companies are going to react, how workers are going to react, what those cultures are going to be like. But we will learn and we will gather data and we will make more and more meaningful predictions. I mean, look, it doesn't stop me from making predictions, but I always note when I make a prediction, look, we don't have a lot of data here, but the little we do tells us this. Yeah, it wouldn't be a $10 million prize if it were that easy, would it? That is true. That is true. Listen, thanks, Jeff. It's been really fun to talk to you and really interesting. And and I'm going to whiz off to Amazon and um, look look for your book. So especially interested in that last chapter. Sounds really interesting. This was super fun. Thank you so much for having me.